Our scripture reading comes from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 9, verse 23 through 24. And you can find that in the Red Pew Bible on page 638. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let, the, let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in all these things I delight, declares the Lord. Drove through my hometown yesterday on the way to Alex Simmons' wedding and uh, was thinking a lot about growing up there. It's a lot like Katie in, in a lot of ways and that it is kind of getting swallowed up by Houston Dripping Springs is. And um, it doesn't look really much like it used to look, but certainly there are things that kind of bring to remembrance things of, of your growing up years and, and being in high school and started thinking a lot about uh, my, my former classmates, and I haven't, I haven't kept up real well with them, um, you know, kind of keep up with each other on Facebook and didn't make it to my high school reunion. I think it was on a Sunday, and so things were, I had other obligations. Um, but as you think about that, I, was, I, I kind of started to wonder and was curious about where are my classmates, and I'm far enough out of high school where it's kind of at that point where you're either going to be successful, as the world thinks of it, or, or you're not. You're, you've either already start to, started to make it, or you haven't, and you're not going to, as the world might think of it that way. And, and it kind of made me start to think back to a, a place where a lot of us might cringe if we think about it from our, from our days, the, the high school yearbook, and seeing our picture in the yearbook and what we, what we used to look like. And, and in those yearbooks, sometimes we're Years ago, I don't know if they still do this, the things that they called the superlatives. You remember the superlatives? Where it might be something to the effect of uh, people would vote on who was the best student and they would have that person's name listed next to it or the best athlete and the most handsome, which I certainly was not voted for that. Uh, they would even have maybe the, the class clown, which wasn't something you really necessarily wanted to be voted for. Maybe you did if you were the class clown, that's what you wanted to be voted for. But then there was always the one that was this. It was most likely to be successful. Most likely to be successful. On Sunday nights this last year, we have been emphasizing with our children in our Sunday evening kids sing, a successful life is a? A life that glorifies God and reaches heaven. And Larry pointed out to me on our handout, it doesn't have that on there, and, and what's, the, what's the deal? And, and that's kind of the point. We're going we're gonna to talk about that a little bit this morning, but I've been thinking a lot about that this last year. I think, in my estimation, that maybe one of the greatest disservices that, that our society can, can give to our children, to us, that we've grown up with, that we've dealt with, is a misunderstanding, an inappropriate regard for what true success in life is. And it's kind of shown in that yearbook thing, right? Where we, 
where we emphasize, you know, who's most likely to be successful. What does that even mean? As you think about what they are putting there in that yearbook and what, what they think that they're going to look like. Does it look like somebody's a CEO? Does it look like somebody's a president? Does it look like somebody who has a, a great philanthropist who's given a lot of money to a lot of great causes? What does it look like? Things have kind of shifted a little bit maybe in the last couple of decades as you think about where as it used to be that people were really driven to be successful from a financial standpoint, to, to work your way up to the highest place on the corporate ladder. You kind of have seen a little bit of shift in the younger generations now in, a, in an effort to think about what success looks like more of getting out and seeing the world and exploring. And you, you have a lot of influencers on Instagram that are going from place to place and they're, they, they're, they're living the high life, which is you know, being in a nice uh, resort somewhere or enjoying the beach or, or the mountains or whatever it may be. And as you think about what that looks like, you, you, the shift has kind of been, in some regard, the world's message is now, do what makes you happy. Do what makes you happy. Whatever you're inclined to do, don't worry about climbing the corporate ladder, but, but do what makes you happy. Sometimes you hear the phrase, be true to yourself. And some of these phrases really kind of come out a lot of the Disney movies, if you think about it. It's kind of Disney's message, and, and we've got to be careful with what, you know, sometimes they're innocent and innocuous, but, but we need to be careful that our children are able to understand and, and distinguish between what, what Disney is saying and what God is saying, as we'll talk about here in a minute. You even hear something like this, and as, as you, you see it on the screen, don't misunderstand. I, I recognize that there's been a good shift in a lot of ways with regard to mental health and, and taking care of yourself and, and addressing your mental health needs and, and those types of things. But sometimes it's maybe even carried out a little too far. Whereas one person put it, it as you think about self-care and maybe taking a mental health day, it's almost as if we are suggesting, if we're not careful, that you are the most important person in the room and that everything should cater to you. We need to watch out for that. To the point where it all kind of leads to this conclusion, which is follow your heart. You heard that? Follow your heart. You hear that a lot in the Disney movies as well. The problem with this message is it's in many ways contrary to God's message. God's message in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse number nine is that the heart is deceitful. It is full of wickedness. It's full of wickedness and it's deceitful and who can understand it, the question is asked. And so as you, you compare to what God's message is in Jeremiah 17 verse nine and what the world is saying, and the world is saying follow your heart, but God is saying the heart's deceitful, don't trust it. We come to our scripture reading and we I want, I want us to open there and see this again in Jeremiah chapter number nine. Open your Bibles with me. Jeremiah chapter number nine in verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord. Sometimes we skip over that because we, you know, we just want to get to what he says. But here's the emphasis. God is saying this. This is God's message. This is what God wants us to know. What God wants us to understand. This isn't the, the prophet's opinion. This isn't Jordan's opinion. This is what God is saying. It says, let not the wise man boast or glory in his wisdom. The idea of boasting or glorying is to celebrate or to hold with high regard, to be happy about, to, to be you know, joyous about. Do not let the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. 
Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. You think about those three things he says in verse 23, the wise man, the mighty man, the rich man, it really kind of encompasses what the world might think of as with regard to success. Maybe the wise man, those that accomplish much in the academic fields, that they're smart. Maybe they've accomplished some sort of, of letters behind their name or, or the mighty man. Maybe it's not so much that they're that, that smart individual, but they have a lot of influence, whether that's political power, whether that is influence on, on some social media platform or whether it's influence as a celebrity or an athlete or the rich man. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. We think about that being maybe the pinnacle of success when you have someone like Warren Buffett or Bill Gates or Elon Musk, that they are successful. God says those things aren't inherently wrong to be wealthy or rich, to be, to be wise, to be, to be mighty in some regard, but rather that we ought not to boast in those things. So I want us to ask the question, maybe do a little self-diagnostic this morning, which is to say, is this something that I am struggling with? And not only is this something that I'm struggling with, but are we as a congregation or are we as parents allowing these types of messages that we are living out in our life to trickle down to our young people, to our children? Four questions to ask with regard to identifying a skewed view of success a view of success that is different than God's view of success. Four questions. First question is this. Is my view of success driven by what I accumulate? Is my view of success driven by what I accumulate? You think about Luke chapter 12 and the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he asks him, what, uh, in this case, Luke chapter 12 is, is the, the, not the rich young ruler, that's, that's later. And Luke chapter 12 is the individual who's, who's upset about uh, his, his brother who is not dividing his inheritance with him. And as he, he comes to Jesus and he, he, dis, he, 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 makes, he wants Jesus to make sure that he divides that inheritance and, and Jesus says, why am I supposed to be the judge over this situation? And he says, beware of covetousness for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of things that he possesses. A man's life does not possess in the abundance of things, consist of the abundance of things that he possesses. Is my view of success driven by my ability to have the latest and greatest, the, the newest iPhone, the biggest house, the fanciest car, the, the, the greatest collection of whatever type of hobby I'm into? Is my view of success driven by what I accumulate? Is it, is it that when I reach that particular point, then I think in my mind that I'm successful? Second question, is my view of success driven by desire for amenities? Jesus continues in that same context in Luke chapter 12 to tell the parable of the rich fool. Remember, he, he recognized that he had a lot uh, of crops and he says, I'm gonna tear down my barns and I'm gonna build bigger barns and I'm gonna say to my soul, he says, soul, take thine ease for you have much laid up in store for you. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And so as we think about, there's a connection here to this accumulation, but notice what he says, take thine ease. 
eat, drink, and be merry. Sometimes our view of success is driven by the amenities that we have. Yes, it's connected to the accumulation of things that we have, but maybe it's more than that, adding another layer to it that says, not only do I have a lot of stuff, but I don't have to work any longer. Maybe I can have other people do my work for me, and yet I can still maintain all the things that I've accumulated. Maybe it's I can have someone come and and clean my house. Maybe that's my view of success. I've reached that pinnacle when I don't have to do my chores anymore and someone else does them for me. Is that my view of success? Is my view of success driven by what I can accomplish? Turn to Daniel chapter four, verse number 28. Daniel chapter four, verse number 28. You recall that King Nebuchadnezzar is in control of Babylon And he looks out in verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of the 12 months, verse 29, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. And the king spoke saying, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling for my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? And then turn the page to chapter five, verse number 20. You see there in verse 31, following it's it's said to him that that your kingdom is going to depart from him. And here it comes, chapter five, verse number 20. When his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and it took his glory from him. Maybe you're not so concerned about a lot of stuff. Maybe you've even downsized. Maybe you're living in a tiny home, but maybe what you're most concerned about is what you've accomplished. Like we said earlier, maybe you're interested in the letters that you have behind your name or how many degrees that you have or, or maybe what you have done in some sort of philanthropist type of approach that you're able to, to give a lot of things or, or maybe you've been successful in, in curing uh, so, some disease or maybe you've been successful in, in being recognized as, as one of the uh, most influential people in society, whatever it may be. Are you concerned about what you can accomplish? Is is your view of success driven by that? Fourth question, is my view of success driven by a crave for acclaim? A crave for acclaim. You think about Matthew chapter number six, verses one through 18. In these cases, Jesus is talking about individuals that were craving acclaim or doing things to be seen of men even though they were doing spiritually motivated things like giving of their alms, the first part of that, or, or the way that they prayed, or the way that they fasted, all those things were, were good and needful, but that instead of doing them for the right reasons, they were in it for the, for the sake of being recognized, being seen of men, having a claim. Maybe your view of success is driven by what other people think of you, what other people say about you, how you are viewed in society. It may not even matter to you how much you've accumulated or what amenities you have or what you can accomplish, but maybe your acclaim. You know, some, it's often said about authors, those that, that write maybe novels or, or other uh, nonfiction books, whatever it may be, that in many cases, they don't become famous or popular until they've died because their books, for whatever reason, become more popular and more well circulated after they've passed away. And so when we think about that, do we strive to get the opposite side of that? Do we strive to make sure that we have the acclaim now so that we can reap the benefit of that, the reward of knowing that people think a lot of us? And so asking those four questions is a good self-diagnostic for us. 
Is my success, my view of success, driven by what I accumulate or the amenities that I desire or the things I can accomplish or how much acclaim I have? Consider next that a skewed view of success causes us to underemphasize some things. A skewed view of success causes us to underemphasize some things in our life. We're going to talk about this for a moment, and here in a second we're going to talk about the fact that it also causes us to overemphasize other things in our life. A skewed view of success first causes us to underemphasize some things, such as it will lead me to underemphasize my relationship with God. It will lead me to underemphasize my relationship with God. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse number 13, Solomon, after his long discourse of all that he had tried to do in his pursuit of success, says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. But it's the whole duty of man to fear God and to keep his commandments. That's the whole duty of man. And yet sometimes in our pursuit of success, we end up underemphasizing some things in our life. And Oftentimes, it is manifested in three or four or five different categories. Sometimes it's manifested, it's shown in our lack of time. When we think about our relationship with our God, John brought it up a couple of weeks ago. He said that our most important thing that we do in our life is worshiping our God and being together. The most important day of our week is coming together with the Lord's people. As we sometimes say with regard to the offering, do we give God the leftovers or do we give him the first fruits? Do we say in our budget that this is what I'm going to give God, this is the amount I'm going, prepared to give to him, and then after that, the rest of our budget follows suit? In a similar vein, do we think about our week? Do we say the most important day to be together with the saints, the Lord's day, to commune together with God's people, that I'm going to make sure that that day is reserved for the Lord, and then everything else after that will follow suit? A lack of time for the, for the Lord in his, in his day. Maybe it's a lack of energy. Maybe sometimes we end up being so tired because of our pursuit of success that we don't have enough energy at the end of the day to study God's word. We don't have enough energy at the end of, of the day to be able to give ourselves in, in devotion to reading and studying and, and, and learning and growing from his word. And, and as a result, sometimes that ends up in a lack of discernment because I haven't spent time in his word. I don't know how to discern between what's good and what's, what's wrong, what's right and what's wrong. And then as a result of that, sometimes we end up with a lack of restraint to say, because I haven't spent time in his word, because I haven't spent time discerning what his word says, I don't have restraint to say I'm going to abstain from that which I should not be engaged in. And, and the whole point of this exercise is to say, it may be that the root cause behind all of this is not that you don't want to love God, but it's that maybe in the back of your mind there's been this skewed view of success because of maybe what our society has communicated over the, over the ages. This is nothing new, as Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun that's been going on and on and on for, for generations of time. But yet we see this cycle manifested over and over again. But it's not just our relationship with God, but it's also our relationship with our church family. You know, we often turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, and we point out that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, and rightfully so, as we just did a moment ago, emphasizing the importance of the Lord's day. But don't forget verse 24, that we are to be considering one another, to provoke one another to love and to good works. If I'm so concerned about and so focused on my pursuit of success, it may lead, or lead itself to us not emphasizing our relationship 
with my church family to be able to encourage them, to motivate them to love and good works. And so, again, it's often manifested in a lack of time. Maybe we want to, we have intentions to tend to the needs of the orphans and the widows. James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure religion, undefiled before the God, God the Father is this, that you visit the, the widows and the orphans in their affliction and keep yourself unspotted from the world. But sometimes a lack of time because of our pursuit of success ends up getting in the way of tending to and, and wanting to help and to, to visit and to see those individuals that, that are maybe sometimes overlooked. Maybe a lack of energy. If there was ever a place that energy was needed, it might be said it's needed at vacation Bible school. But sometimes we're just so plumb tired from our jobs, from our work, that from our pursuit of success that Michael's scrambling looking for volunteers for vacation Bible school. And so sometimes it's manifested in a lack of energy. Maybe it's manifested in a lack of discernment. Maybe our view of what success looks like in the church is, is driven by our view of what success looks like in the world to say that our numbers on the board back there, when we have a certain number of people, that then we've reached success, that, that we have grown to a certain point instead of looking at maturity and, and wholesomeness and, and, and conduct and, and individual character, especially in my own life. Maybe it leads to a lack of restraint. And instead of treating my brothers and sisters with, with kindness and with humility, because of the fact that I'm so plumb tired and I don't have enough time, I, I'm, I'm quick worded uh, and, I, and I don't think about what I'm saying and I ultimately say things that are hurtful and harmful. I'm unable to withhold my tongue. You can see how maybe it's this root cause of our, of our desire to pursue and be successful that ends up leading us to, to underemphasize my relationship with God and, and with my church family, maybe even my relationship with my home. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 7, Peter says, Husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge or in an understanding way. It's impossible to dwell with our wives according to knowledge or in an understanding way if we're never there, first and foremost. And if our pursuit of success leads us to end up seeking and pursuing after the things of this world, the things of this life, we can't dwell with them according to knowledge when we're not there. Think about 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse number 12, in which it is said of Eli's sons that they were worthless and they did not know God. Eli was a priest. You ever heard of a PK? I'm a PK, I'm a preacher's kid, okay? Preacher's kids sometimes have a bad reputation, right? Have you ever thought about why that is? Could it be that preacher's kids sometimes have a bad reputation because in some cases, thankfully not here, I'm I tell you, I'm very blessed and thankful. I'm not saying that my kids don't have a bad reputation. Maybe they do. What I'm saying is the elders and the congregation here, I do not feel place an undue burden or uh, you know, bearing of responsibility upon us to the point that we end up having to neglect our family. Oftentimes, it is the case in preachers' families that they are so dedicated, whether it's because of their own pursuit of success as a minister or whether it's their own uh, feelings of, of being borne down upon by the elders of the congregation to make sure that they're filling in all the details and doing all the things that they need to do, that their children end up neglected. And so they end up like Eli's sons, worthless, do not know the Lord. 
So sometimes, again, it's often manifested in a lack of time. When we are pursuing success, and our pursuit of success is viewed, uh, askewed, sometimes it's a lack of time to say, guys, tonight it's just another fast food meal, tonight it's just another microwave meal, and though there's nothing wrong with fast food or microwave meals, sometimes we need to recognize the importance of sitting around the table together as a family thinking about the day and and debriefing about the day and and connecting with one another on a conversational level and not just through text. Sometimes it's manifest in a lack of energy and I'll raise my hand first. Babysitters cost money, but one thing that's cheaper is is, um, some shows on Netflix or, or a tablet. And so sometimes a lack of energy to say, I don't have the time or the energy right now to be able to, to throw the ball with you. Sit down, please, and just watch another episode so I can just catch my breath. Or maybe it's a lack of discernment. Instead of thinking about what's best for our children, what's really needed in their life, and their spiritual life, we pursue after things and we communicate to them that certain things are needful in their life to be successful, and then that lack of discernment ends up being a snowball and trickling down to them. Or maybe a lack of restraint. Maybe it's we feel guilty because of, of the fact that we are so in pursuit of success all the time that we end up just buying them whatever they want, giving them anything that they desire. And it ends up, as one individual said it, children are not spoiled because of too much love. Children are spoiled because of a lack of presence. Instead of being given presence, they are often given presents as in gifts. And so a lack of restraint ends up coming along. And sometimes even if we might add another one here, a lack of discipline. Because of our pursuit of success, because we're so enamored with what success looks like in the world, when we get home, we, we haven't spent much time with our children and then ultimately we don't want to discipline them because we don't want the only time that we're with them to be time that we're disciplining them. And so you can see the snowball, you can see the root problem maybe that's, that's causing a lot of issues with our relationship with God, that's causing a lot of issues with our relationship with the church family and in our home. But then on the flip side of it, sometimes a skewed view of success causes us to overemphasize things, to overemphasize things. Oftentimes we, we work on a pendulum, right? We're, we're either on one extreme or we are on the complete opposite extreme. And so let's consider two extremes here. On one extreme, we might emphasize that success equals perfection or accomplishment and doing everything just right. And we referenced earlier, accidentally, Matthew chapter 19, the rich young ruler, in which he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what must I do? What, what am I lacking? And sometimes we, dis- we, we appreciate sermons and Bible classes that are very practical and, and rightfully so, but we often sometimes want those practical lessons because we just want to be told what to do. Instead of maybe thinking about what are some principles, what are some good, godly, foundational uh, principles that I need to establish my life on, just tell me what to do and I'll follow those. And maybe it seems that that's what's the struggle with this rich young ruler here. He was struggling with just wanting to know how can I be perfect? What can I do to do everything exactly right that I need to do? And maybe he had some good intentions, but it seems though that there wasn't that one thing he wanted to give up. He didn't want to sell all of his possessions, give them to the poor and follow Jesus. And so he's on one side of the pendulum and emphasis on success equals perfection. And sometimes we do that in the professional arena that says I want the perfect job and I want it to, to provide the perfect retirement for me. I know John's brought this up before, maybe we don't always see uh, maybe th- that retirement is something that's necessarily found in scripture. 
that, that's not guaranteed to us. Yes, there's an understanding that, that there's reasonable, uh, reasonableness in being a good steward of our money and maybe not overburdening our children later on, and that's what retirement's helpful with and that type of thing. But if our goal of success is to live to the point where we can get to retirement, to, to the point where I can just go and do whatever I want to do without maybe being bound by certain things, Maybe that's our view of success and we overemphasize success equals perfection and having the perfect job and then ultimately it trickles down to our children. You've got to get the perfect job. You've got to get the perfect grades. And so we think about in the academic arena, you've got to get the perfect grades. Maybe we felt that way growing up and we had to go to college and what's the first question we ask our high school graduates? What are your plans? Where are you going? What school are you going to? Maybe they're not going to a college. Maybe they're not going to a university. Do we, do we think negatively about them? Do we ask, are you really, you're not going, what what are you planning to do? You're just going to go work at the grocery store? Is that maybe something that you've communicated to someone before? Because God's view of success is completely different than the world's view of success, which says you've got to go to the university, you've got to get, you know, the master's degree, maybe even the PhD, and then after that, you've got to make thousands upon thousands of dollars enough to be able to retire comfortably. So sometimes success equals perfection as academic students, or maybe sometimes success in the extracurricular activities. And we we say successfulness looks like being a state champion in football, or successfulness looks like being someone who has made the the solo, uh, you know, ensemble, whatever it may be. And so we emphasize that success equals perfection in that area. Sometimes we even emphasize that success looks like being perfect as a Christian. And so sometimes, as we talked about, that's often also the case for preachers' kids. It's not that they were only neglected, but it's also sometimes that preachers will place an undue burden on their children to say, you better not mess up, you better not do anything wrong, because it's going to look bad on me as a preacher. And I'm thankful that, that my father emphasized to me many times that it's not about not making me look bad, but it's about doing what's right because it's the right thing to do and because it honors God. And sometimes it's not just preacher's kids that do that. It's maybe elder's kids and, and, and deacon's kids and, and others that, that go off the rails because they don't want to be making their dads look bad while they're, while they're in, in the home, but then they've been so pushed down upon over the years that eventually they get a little bit of freedom and they go off on their own. Newsflash, there's not a perfect Christian. Every one of us will make mistakes, and if we accidentally or maybe unaware in a way do this, that we conflate perfection equals success into the Christian life as well, then we end up down the wrong trail of meritorious works that says I can earn my salvation and will never have assurance, never have peace and confidence in knowing that God's grace, that I'm covered in it while I'm walking in the light, while I'm seeking to pursue him, not being perfect. Sometimes I'll slip up, sometimes I'll slip down that rung, but I will mess up. But so long as I'm striving to keep my eyes on him, the Lord's taking care of me. Sometimes on the other end of the pendulum, there was our pendulum over there on that side. Here we are on this side now. We emphasize that success equals happiness. Look in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We, we pointed out Ecclesiastes chapter number 12 a little bit ago. But Ecclesiastes chapter number 2, I want us to see what Solomon said in verses 10 and 11. Ecclesiastes 2, verses 10 and 11, Solomon says, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. 
Then I looked at all the works that my hands had done and the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity. And grasping for the wind, there was no profit under the sun. We said sometimes we emphasize that success equals perfection, and other times we emphasize that success equals happiness. To do all that we can to maybe manufacture a life that is without discomfort. We, we don't want there to be anything that makes us uncomfortable, and so everything that we do, we do the easy. We push the easy button, right? Instead of doing the hard things and having the hard conversations, we just press the easy button. And again, that trickles down to our children. We, we, you, know, you hear about the helicopter parents that hover around their kids and don't let anything negative happen to them, but sometimes there's the lawnmower parent that mows down everything in their kid's path that says, we're gonna make everything easy because happiness equals a life without discomfort. Or maybe it's manufacturing a life without disappointment. A life without disappointment. You've heard of FOMO? The fear of missing out. It's not just kids that struggle with this. It's adults that struggle with this as well. And sometimes because we don't want to be disappointed, we say, I'm just going to give in to what I shouldn't be doing, what I shouldn't be involved in, and I'm going to engage in this pleasure that Solomon talked about. I'm going to do this anyway because I don't want to miss out on what the rest of the world is doing. And so again, it trickles down to our kids and we allow them to engage in things and be a part of things where they shouldn't be and they shouldn't be doing those things because they're godly and wholesome things are not happening there because we just don't want them to be disappointed. Maybe it's manufacturing a life without disagreement. We see this in the world today that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. And so this just makes it easier because I don't want to disagree with anybody. I don't want to be at odds with anyone. I don't want to butt heads with anyone. And so therefore, I'm going to manufacture a life without disagreement. Let's just pretend like everything is all daisies and roses, that there's nothing that is established about truth. That just however you want to live, you live. And however I want to live, I'll live. And then again, it trickles down to our children as well. My kid would never do that. They didn't, they didn't do that. Are you serious? No, my kid's perfect. Or, or they, were, they weren't wrong, they were right in what they said. And so we manufacture a life, again, that says success equals happiness, that manufactures a life without disagreement. And finally, a life without discouragement. A life without discouragement. Why do we sometimes post, not always, I'm not impugning a motive on every social media post. Why do we post on social media sometimes? It's because we like the interaction that we get, the likes, the loves, the comments, the shares, because we want to be encouraged, because sometimes we don't like to be dwelling in a life of discouragement. We want to be encouraged. We want people to tell us good things about ourselves, and again, trickles down to our children. We don't want them to be discouraged. We want them to have a high self-esteem to the point where they end up doing things to be seen of men. Going back to our previous slide, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 through 18. Success does not equal happiness. Success does not equal perfection. Let's talk about, as we close, a balanced view of success. A balanced view of success is understanding and knowing God. That's why we didn't necessarily put this on the sheet this morning. I'm thinking about, I don't know yet if I'm for sure going to do this, but with kids saying, maybe, maybe we'll just change it up every year and kind of add a layer to it. What is, it, what is true success? What does success will look like? It is understanding and knowing God. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24, again, he is one who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. And he says, in these things I delight, declares the Lord. 
Micah chapter 6, verse number 8, the prophet says, He has told you, O man, what is good, that you are to be an individual that walks justly, that, that, that does justly, that loves mercy, and walks humbly with your God. Sounds awfully familiar, awfully similar to what he's saying here about an individual that God practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in all the earth. And as you think about that, the previous pendulums that we were just on, when we have a balanced view of success that is understanding and knowing God, I realize that perfection is impossible, but my God is perfect. And I can be perfect only, or that is complete, only in him. And my life only has meaning in him. Matthew chapter 5, verse number 48, at the, in the middle of the Sermon of the Mount there, be ye therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Not perfect that you'll never make a mistake, but that it's only in him that you have completion, the fullness, a fully grown, mature man, that you in that case will have reached success. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 17 Verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness. Verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. God's word is given to us. Why do we spend so much time emphasizing it? Because this is where true success is found. It's found in recognizing I can only be perfect in him. But then the other side of the pendulum, happiness is fleeting. Happiness is fleeting, but I can be content in him. So many times we seek success and we think that success looks like being happy, and as long as I'm happy, then I'm successful. The problem is, as we all know, tomorrow comes and we're not happy because something else has happened or someone else has got something better than we do. And we're not content, but as Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, I've learned in whatever state I'm in, whether I've made high or whether I've made low, whatever state I'm in, I've learned to be content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, not win the football game, not get the best grade, but that I can be content because of Jesus Christ. I'm in him. That's where true success is found, knowing and understanding God. At the end of that section there in Jeremiah 9, verse 24, he says, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. If we were to go back to where we began this morning and thinking about superlatives, if God were to say, this is the thing that I am most superlative, I am most concerned with, that I am most delight in, is that you understand me, that you know me, that you practice steadfast love, and justice and righteousness like I do. Is your view of success skewed this morning? Maybe you've been blinded by and distracted by what the world suggests that success looks like. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the opportunity to make it right, to focus, to rededicate. We talk about all the time, you know, this time of year as the calendar turns, We have New Year's resolutions. Now is the time to say my view of success, my view of a successful life is not determined by and defined by what the world says, but by what God says. If you're not a Christian this morning, that's especially where it begins. In Christ, as we talked about in Bible class this morning, you are baptized into Christ Jesus. That's how you get into him. It's at the watery grave of baptism that you have your sins washed away. You put on Christ and you are found in his body 
We want you to do that. We want all people to do that. If you're not having already done that, we want you to come forward and sit on one of these front rows, not because anyone wants to shame you, not because anyone wants to think less of you, but because everyone loves you. And that's what this is about. Coming here to the front row isn't about just airing out in your dirty laundry, but saying, I want my life to be successful in the eyes of God. If there's anything we can do for you, we ask that you come as we stand and as we sing.